Someone came up with some humorous observations or insights about life and how we can live it. It says a balanced diet is a cookie in each hand. If it weren't for stress, I'd have no energy at all. Learn from the mistakes of others. You, can live long enough. you can't live long enough to make them all yourself. Someone who thinks logically provides a nice contrast to the real world. Experience is a wonderful thing. It enables you to recognize a mistake when you make it again. If the shoe fits, buy it in every color. If you're too open-minded, your brains will fall out. Junk is something you've kept for years and throw it away three weeks before you need it. If you look like your passport picture, then you really need the trip. And a conscious is, conscience is what hurts when all other parts feel so good. <laughs> uh, all good stuff to live by, right or wrong. But probably all of us live by at least some axioms, some pithy statements that we've heard from our parents or we use from ourselves or we've learned from our own experience or the experience of others that these things just seem to be true. We all live by at least some principles that we believe will guide us in life, principles that might make us successful, might make us fulfilled, might make us prosperous or bring us greater, better relationships, make us fruitful in some way or whatever it is that we really want out of life. And those axioms are often expressed in just a few words that seem to sum up for us what it is that we can apply to our lives and live by the principles. And even if we don't express them in catchy phrases like that, we all live by something. We all live by something, and that something is going to determine the results and the outcomes of our existence on this earth. When it's all said and done at the end of life, then what? Did we live by the right stuff? And did it accomplish its intended outcome? Or do we get to the end of life and discover that the principles that we tried to live by let us down? Sometimes big time. In the letters that Paul wrote to the churches, he used many illustrations from the world that he borrowed, and he used these to communicate truth about the Christian life and how we are to live it. And he used it to communicate truths that won't let us down. And Paul illustrates them in a way that we can fully understand them and apply them to our lives. These won't let us down. These won't disappoint in this life or in the next. And there's four that Paul used prominently in Scripture. For example, he used the military as an illustration. He exhorts, put on the full armor of God that gives the picture of the, the Roman soldier. He uses my favorite, architecture. If you don't know, I'm also a licensed architect. I like, you are the temple of God. Many of you can relate to the agricultural metaphors. Whatever a man sows, then he shall also reap. And in our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians, we find Paul the athlete, where he tells us how we can win the race of life. Using the analogy of athletics, Paul gives us the essentials for being a winning Christian and what that means and fulfilling the purposes that God has for those of us who have been saved. Winning the race of life. We come now to number two on the outline if you're following it, and I'm going to warn you here because we go quite a ways before we get to the one that has the letter A by it, dissatisfaction. So if you lose yourself in the outline, I'll let you know when we get there. 
But <laughs> aren't outlines wonderful? <laughs> many Christians have what they call a life verse. How many of you have a life verse or more than one verse that, that you live by? Something that, that's a verse in Scripture that has special meaning. Maybe it was a time that God spoke to you in a particular way and he showed you something about your life and, and how to live. It's a rallying cry or it's a comfort when things get tough. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. One of my favorites is, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And here in the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians at verse 10, right before what we read this morning, it seems to me that we find the Apostle Paul's life verse. It's found in Philippians chapter 3, the 10th verse. This is what Paul wanted to live. This is how he wanted to live. This was his rallying cry. This was the passion of his life. <clears throat> this is what affected everything he did, everything he said. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Then Paul gives us the why of this verse. Why Paul wanted to know Christ in this way, verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And then he goes on in verses 12 through 16, using an athletic metaphor or analogy, Paul tells us what it's going to take, what it's going to take and what it's going to take in his life and in our own lives. What is it going to take to be winning Christians? And what is the definition of a winning Christian? How do we fulfill the purposes that God has for each one of us in Christ Jesus? And so in verses 12 through 16 of Philippians chapter 3, we find Paul the athlete. He gives the illustration of a race that his readers in ancient Macedonia in Philippi would have readily understood, and all of us here this morning, because of our knowledge of athletics, we understand it as well. Now, Bible students are not agreed as to what the exact sport is that Paul is talking about here. We know it's not soccer, because they didn't have that in those days. But uh, usually it boils down, is he talking about a foot race, or is he talking about a chariot race? Now, either one will work as we work through the analogy, and either one gives us the meaning of what Paul is talking about. But it's either a foot race or a chariot race. And Warren Wiersbe, who did Back to the Bible for so many years and was pastor at Moody uh, Church in Chicago for for many years as well. He says his own preference is the chariot race. And I kind of like that too. The Greek chariot that was used in the Olympic Games and other events was really only a small platform with two wheels attached. It didn't have all those sides and all that fancy stuff that we see on the Egyptian chariots. Think of a two-foot square by three-quarter inch piece of plywood with wheels on it. And there's no rails or anything like that. And the driver had to hold on to those reins, and that's all he had to hold on to. You know, there's no other way to keep his balance. And what he'd have to do was lean forward with every nerve and every muscle to maintain balance and control the horses. And in fact, the verb that's translated reaching forward here in verse 13 literally means stretching as in a race. 
Stretching is in a race with everything you've got. And of course, it works in a foot race as well because we've seen that in the Olympics and in races in track where, where they get to the finish line, they stretch because they want to be the first one to cross. That's, that's one of the things my wife, who won the state hurdles when she was in high school, <laughs> you know, when we watch the Olympics and we watch the heats because they're trying to save their energy for the final race. So they come across the finish line. I won my heat. You know, like they have arrived. That's it. And, and Jan says, you know, you got to push through through the tape. You know, you got to give it your all every time you go through, and that's the, the important thing that Paul is showing us. But it's important to note here that Paul is not telling us how to be saved. These are not salvation verses. He's telling us how to live the Christian life after we are saved. How to win, not how to gain salvation, because if he were telling us how to gain salvation, if it's a picture of salvation, then we'd say salvation comes by self effort or being kept in salvation comes by self-effort and this would contradict everything that Paul's already said in the Philippian letter rather this is a graphic picture in Philippians chapter 2 of what we saw in verses 12 through 13 work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure as in a chariot race as in a foot race Work out your salvation. Live out your salvation with fear and trembling. Reach forward in the race without looking back, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Every one of us as believers is on the track of life, whether you want to be on that track or not. The Christian life is not a spectator sport. We're all on the track of life, and we are to run with fear and trembling because of the dangers and the risk that are involved. One of my favorite movies is Ben-Hur. I could watch it over and over and over again. Every time they get to that spot where he's on the slave ship and he's going like this and they're pounding, pounding, all, me and all the kids go, I hate roving. <laughs> you know, now that'll ruin it for whenever you see it again. But... But one of my favorite scenes in all of moviedom, because I saw it when I was a kid over at the Egyptian theater when I was in just a little kid, is the chariot race in Ben-Hur. Chariots are crashing together. Competitors are whipping each other. There's really no rules. And some of the poor guys who are out trying to clear the track, they get run over. And when they filmed Ben-Hur, rumors spread that stuntmen had been killed because it's so realistic. And they said, oh, no, none of that really really happened. But in the race of life, there are no spectators. There are no stuntmen who can take your place for you. Everybody's down on the track. Everyone is competing. And if you decide to sit it out or play by different rules, you're going to get run over. You're going to get hurt. And you're not going to win. You see, each one of us as a believer in Jesus Christ has a special lane in which to run. I used to like that in the four spiritual laws. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I always want to go, what is that plan? Well, that plan is what God has for your life. Each, has God, each one of us has a goal to achieve that is God-given. And if we reach the goal the way that God intended us to, then we receive a reward. If we fail, we lose the reward, but we don't lose our salvation. Now, being the architect that I am, I want to switch metaphors for a minute. 
use an architectural metaphor, turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians chapter 3. Because Paul is telling us, using an architectural metaphor, the same thing he's telling the Philippians over in chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. Paul is showing us that whatever we build in this life, whatever we build on the foundation, the foundation is that of the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever we build, however we live, at the end of life is going to be tested by fire. It's a picture of building our lives, a picture of what we work for, what we work with as we build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise builder, I laid a foundation. What was that foundation? He brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Corinthians. And they received Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only foundation of our lives. And it says, another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation or we could say lives his life and builds with gold, silver, precious metals, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved. So there we see that right there. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about our lives, what we build, what we work for. Yet so as through fire. Now, when I was growing up over at First Baptist Church in Emmett, I had lots of moms. Everybody mothered every kid over there. That was because maybe we did some things kids shouldn't be doing. <laughs> but uh, one of my church moms that I dearly loved and, and had the opportunity to, to, to know her and uh, be part of even her funeral service a couple of years ago as a, a pallbearer, she used to put it this way with her homespun logic. She said, someday people are going to go to heaven and find out that their mansion is nothing more than an outhouse. <laughs> And I've thought about that over the years. She said they built their Christian life with wood, hay, and straw. And when it's tested by fire, it's going to be all burned up. And they're going to find themselves sitting there in the ashes. They suffer loss. They'll receive no rewards, but they're still saved. I probably heard that from her in the first grade in her Sunday school class. And that's something you never forget when she puts it that blunt. You know, because Jesus referred to the same thing when he talked about storing up treasure in heaven and, and on earth, where moth and rust destroy. And so we're asking the question, are you living your life in such a way that you're storing it up in heaven with permanent, eternal building materials, or are you storing it up here on earth with wood, hay, and straw, where rust, rust and moth destroy? And if for no other motivation, if for no other reason that we don't want to suffer loss when we get to heaven's glories. We want to be winning Christians with what Paul is talking about here. We want to fulfill the purposes that God has for each one of us, and we want to gain the prize, as Paul says, he's reaching for it. We want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
So what are the essentials of winning the race? What are the essentials of one day receiving the reward that is promised? And so Paul gives us five essentials or attitudes that we must have in running the race and receiving the award. And we finally got back to the outline here. This is number A, dissatisfaction. And so uh, we spent a lot of time getting to that first point this morning. Dissatisfaction. Verse 12 of Philippians chapter 3. Paul says in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 3, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Not that I have already obtained, says Paul. This is the great statement of a great Christian who never permitted himself to be satisfied with his spiritual attainments. He never believed that he had arrived. Of course, Paul was completely satisfied with Jesus Christ. Completely satisfied with Jesus Christ. But he was never satisfied with his Christian life. A sanctified dissatisfaction is the first essential to progress in the Christian life, to grow in maturity, to become more like Christ. You know, today, just like in Paul's day, there are those who teach that a Christian can reach a certain level of perfection in this life, reach a level of sanctification where uh, some have even described it as the effects of original sin no longer are there. In other words, the propensity to sin is no longer there. And, And some have even taught that you can reach a point where you no longer sin at all. And others explain it as as when a person is totally and completely yielded to the Holy Spirit that they have reached a perfection, an an entire sanctification. And the way I see what Paul is saying here, he would disagree. He would disagree heartedly. If anyone could obtain perfection in this life, it would have been the Apostle Paul. And Paul says he hadn't attained it. And so Paul's confession of dissatisfaction allowed no such thinking then or now. Here's the Apostle Paul, who I believe is the most spectacular Christian who ever lived. And he confessed that he had not yet arrived. He had not yet obtained it. Paul admitted his own need to grow into maturity and to grow in Christ-likeness. And his confession stands as a warning against a super-spiritual kind of Christianity that imagines that the blessings of heaven to come can be had now in this age can be had now before we're raised from the dead. In Paul's day, there were the Judaizers. We've talked about those guys. that They taught that by keeping the law of Moses, you can reach a state of perfection that made them possessors of all of heaven's blessings. And they went from town to town where Paul had been teaching this, the effect of the rival of heaven itself. Heaven perfection is now theirs, now they argued. If we imagine that we have heaven now, we have embraced an erroneous and far-fetched notion. And we must understand that, especially on TV today, that there are certain groups that claim the same thing. There are those who claim and want you to believe that mature Christians will stay healthy, enjoy material prosperity, will wholly overcome sin. Heaven's blessings are yours now. 
And one popular TV preacher who preaches freedom from sin and from poverty and promises healing of all diseases and all the blessings of heavens are yours, heaven is yours now, this is the way he puts it. The world's shortages have no effect on someone who has already gone to heaven. Therefore, they should have no effect on us here who have made Jesus Christ Lord of our lives. The reality is, however, that the more we come to know Christ, the more we will sense our need to grow and become more like Christ. Paul's humble confession, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, brings forth something remarkable. It births a mighty resolve in Paul. Verse 12 of Philippians chapter 3. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. We see Paul's gritty resolve in the original Greek. His language here is, is tinged with fierceness and violence. The idea of grabbing something, seizing something. That's the words he's using here. The idea is, I pursue it, if indeed I may seize it, because indeed I have been seized by Jesus Christ. The language that Paul uses is the language of war and athletics. In fact, there's a battle report written by the ancient historian Herodotus who used the exact same words Paul uses here to describe an army's pursuit and seizure of the retreating columns of the enemy as they came upon them and seized them and took them over. I believe Paul's referring back to his, the rough-and-tumble experience that he had on the road to Damascus where the risen, exalted Jesus Christ seized him as his own. In other words, it's almost like Paul, as he trod along that Damascus road, the mighty hand of Christ reached down, seized him by the scruff of his robe, set him on the path to Ananias' house, and then on the path to Arabia, and then on the path to take the gospel to the Gentile world. Here Paul expressed his desire to know the risen Christ because he believed he was in the grip of Jesus Christ. Paul's whole pursuit of Christ was Christ-originated, Christ-motivated, and Christ-propelled. Excuse me. I did put water up here. And so Paul's dissatisfaction accounts for the second essential aspect or attitude in running the race of life. Secondly, we see Paul's devotion, his devotion. Middle of verse 13 of Philippians chapter 3. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. It's a picture of absolute focus and intensity. Paul's devotion is seen in how he considers his past. Forgetting what lies behind. On August 7, 1954, during the British Empire Games in Vancouver, Canada, the greatest mile run matchup ever took place. Two milers. It was touted as the miracle mile because Britisher Roger Bannister and Australian John Landy were the only two sub-four-minute milers to ever have run in the world. Bannister had been the first man ever to run a four-minute mile. Both runners were in peak condition. 
Bannister, the first man to do it, he, he decided that if he's going to beat this Australian, he, he's going to relax during the third lap and save everything for the finishing drive. But as they begin that third lap, Landy, the Australian, really poured it on. And Bannister said, this is not going to work. I've got to keep up with him. And so Landy had already established this substantial lead. So Bannister, he can't relax the third lap. So he's just got to give it everything he can. And so Bannister adjusted his strategy, increasing his pace, and he was gaining on Landy. And the lead was quickly cut in half. And at the bell lap for the final lap, at the bell for the final lap, they were dead even. Dead even, right in front of the cheering crowd. The crowd began to cheer. They began to run faster, and Bannister followed suit. Both men were flying. Bannister felt he was going to lose if Landy didn't slow down because it was remarkable. And then, be then came the famous moment. It's been replayed thousands of times on celluloid, black and white film, and in print. At the last stride, just before they were coming to the home stretch, Landy, who could not hear Bannister's footsteps because of the roaring crowd, looked behind him. In fact, he looked the wrong way. Not only did it break his stride and slow him down, but Bannister passed him without... When he looked around, Bannister was like three yards in, in front of him, just shot around that side. It was a fatal lapse of concentration. Bannister launched, launched his attack, and he won the Empire Games that day, by five yards. And John Landy's lapse is as old as antiquity. The sports knowledgeable Apostle Paul could have seen Landy's mistake in a flash because he knew that to be successful, a runner cannot look back over his shoulder. We must forget what lies behind because when a one runner turns even slightly to look back, there's a momentary loss of focus and rhythm and that incurs the critical loss of even a fraction of a second, which can lose the race. The unsaved person is controlled by his or her past. But the Christian running the race looks to the future. And so this is the third essential aspect that Paul shows us in running the race. It shows us the direction we are to run, the direction which we are to look. Reaching forward to what lies ahead, direction. Now imagine, let, let's go back to the chariot race for a minute. This is one of the reasons I, I like this so well. Imagine what would happen on the race course if the charioteers started looking behind them. They'd lose their balance. They'd lose their concentration. You know, they'd probably get injured. It's bad enough, as Jesus said, for a plowman to look back, according to him. But for a charioteer to do so meant a possible collision and serious injury. The believer should be future-oriented, forgetting those things which are behind. Now keep in mind, in Bible terminology, to forget does not mean to fail to remember. Apart from senility, hypnosis, brain malfunction, the mature person cannot forget what has happened in the past. We may wish we could forget certain events in the past, Forget, to forget in the Bible means no longer to be influenced by or affected by. When God promises their sins and their iniquities, I will remember no more. It's not like God is, we're suggesting that God has a bad memory or he chooses to forget. 
You know, I, I think of this in terms of if God actually forgets, you know, he's going to look at his son, Jesus Christ, one day on the cross and say, what did you die for? <laughs> How silly that would be. It's not to forget what God is saying. I will no longer hold their sins against them. Their sins can no longer affect their standing with me or influence my attitude towards them. So forgetting those things which are behind does not suggest an impossible feat of mental and psych, uh, psychological gymnastics where we try to erase the sins and the memories and the mistakes of the past. It simply means that we will break the power of the past by living for the future. Don't miss that. If you don't get anything else today, Ben-Hur or anything, forget all that stuff. Don't miss this. Forgetting those things which are behind means we break the power of the past by living for the future. We can't change the past, but we can change the meaning of the past. There were things in Paul's past that may have been weights to hold him back. He mentions some of those in his letter to Timothy. Paul was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor of the church. He was a violent aggressor. But these things in the past became inspirations for him to focus and speed ahead. The events did not change his understanding. His, the events did not change, but his understanding of them changed. When I was born in Council, Idaho, many moons ago, I was named after Bill Cunningham. Bill Cunningham was a close friend of my dad. And I, as I remember it, uh, Bill Cunningham was a game warden up in council. And in fact, when we moved back to Emmett just before I was two years old, we lived next door, down farther on Washington than we lived later, next to Bill Cunningham's parents. And one of my earliest memories is, I remember my second birthday, and I can remember quite a bit about my, my second year, which is kind of amazing, but uh, the Cunninghams, we went to their house, I still remember the linoleum floor, and they had this toy stuffed elephant that I just thought was the greatest, the most neatest thing in the whole world. And I always wanted to go next door to the Cunninghams so I could play with the elephant. Well, the Cunninghams and Bill Cunningham had a famous brother. His name was Glenn Cunningham. Glenn Cunningham is still considered by many to be the greatest American miler who ever ran. He broke several world records in the early part of the 20th century. In fact, in the 1936 Summer Olympics in Berlin that Hitler was so proud of, and Jesse Owens won a lot of races, Bill or Glenn Cunningham was voted the most popular athlete by his fellow Olympians. In fact, he just finished just ahead of Jesse Owens in that vote. And the amazing thing about Glenn Cunningham was that his legs had been very badly burned in an explosion. He and his brother were stoking the stove or whatever they do at the schoolhouse when somebody had accidentally put gasoline in the can instead of kerosene. And the schoolhouse exploded. Uh, Glenn was eight. His brother Floyd was 13. Floyd died in the fire. When the doctors recommended amputating eight-year-old Glenn's legs, he was so distressed that his parents would not allow it. And the doctors predicted that he probably would never walk again. At least he would never walk normally. He'd lost all the flesh on his knees and shins and all the toes on his left foot. Also, his traverse arch was practically destroyed. 
However, because of his great determination and coupled with long hours of, of therapy and those kind of things that eventually enabled him, enabled him to regain the ability to walk and proceed to run, becoming the greatest miler who ever lived. It was in the early summer of 1919 when he first tried to walk again, roughly two years after the accident. He had a positive attitude as well as a strong religious faith. His favorite Bible verse was Isaiah 40, 31, his theme verse. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings such as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Glenn Cunningham knew what it meant to forget what lies behind and to reach forward to what lies ahead. A good example of this principle is Joseph, who was sold into slavery in Egypt. When he met his brothers the second time and he revealed himself to them, he held no grudge against them for all the evil they had done to him. To be sure, they had mistreated him, but he saw it from God's point of view. Joseph told his brothers that what they meant for evil, God had intended for good to bring this present result. And as a result, he was unable to hold anything against his brothers. Joseph knew that God had had a plan, a plan for his life, a race for him to run, even with all the difficulties. And fulfilling this plan and looking ahead, he broke the power of the past. Too many Christians are shackled by regrets of the past. They're trying to run the race by looking backward. No wonder they stumble and fall. No wonder they get in the way of other Christians. Some can't get past the past. They can't get past how they were treated in the past. The, la the track is littered with crippled Christians. And because they've been wounded by the church, they decide it's their job to trip others up as well. And then you have the runners, the Christian runners even, that think they have arrived. They figured this all out. And what do they do as legalists? They're throwing stumbling blocks in front of, of everybody else as they're trying to run the race. The things which are behind, says Paul, must be set aside. The things which are before must take their place. But you know, it's possible to have dissatisfaction, devotion, and direction and still lose the race and the reward. There's a fourth essential, determination. We find determination in verse 14 of Philippians chapter 3. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In some regard, this is one of my life verses. Two, three, sometimes four times a week, I put my heavy backpack with computer, Bible, and books, and all that stuff that uh, Pilgrim, or Christian couldn't even carry in Pilgrim's Progress, and I put on my backpack, and I get on my bicycle, and I pedal from First Street, and I come up the cemetery hill to come up to the church. And every spring, I have one particular goal in mind. Not that I've attained it, but I press on, I reach forward, I want to receive the prize before the summer is over of being able to reach the top without stopping to rest, without having a heart attack, without laying down on the street, <laughs> getting run over by a school bus or a logging truck. And as I pedal up the hill, I quote to myself, Philippians 3.14, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of Jesus Christ. That's determination. Even when you feel like your heart's going to pop, your, your legs are burning, there's a name for that, some kind of acid that gets in your muscles. 
Determination that translates into pressing down on the pedals when the muscles burn and when you're gasping for air. In fact, the word translated I press carries the idea of intense endeavor. The Greeks used it to describe a hunter eagerly pursuing his prey. In other words, a, a person does not become a winning athlete by listening to lectures, watching movies, reading books, cheering at the games. He or she becomes a winning athlete by getting into the grace, race and determining to win. Warren Wiersbe ponders, Come to think of it, wouldn't it be wonderful if Christians put as much determination into their spiritual life as they did their golfing, fishing, or bowling? That's why I quoted him, because <laughs> let others ask it. You see, it's not enough to run hard and win the race, but the runner must also obey the rules. And this takes discipline. Verses 15 and 16 of Philippians chapter 3. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect or mature, have this attitude. And if, anything you have, if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have obtained. We have to run according to strict standards. In the Greek games, the judges were very strict about this. Any infringement of the rules would make the runner or the athlete disqualified. If he was disqualified, he would not lose his citizenship as a citizen of Greece, though he was disgraced by it, but he would lose his privilege to participate and to win a prize. Paul emphasized the importance of the Christian remembering the spiritual rules laid down by God in his word. In one place, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified. How do you get disqualified? You get disqualified by taking shortcuts or by breaking the rules. You look at that oval track and you go, oh, that's such a long ways around there. Hey, I can cut across the infield and get there a whole lot faster to the finish line. But you would be disqualified. Oh, there's, there's a shorter way to achieve that. There's a better way to achieve that. And Paul wasn't afraid that he would lose his salvation. He was assured of that. But he was afraid that he would be at some point disqualified and not receive the prize. Bible history is filled with people who began the race with great success but failed at the end because they disregarded God's rules. They didn't lose their salvation, but they certainly lost their reward. It happened to Lot, to Samson, King Saul, Dananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. And it can happen to us. You know, it's an exciting experience to run the race daily, looking to Jesus. You know, and it's even going to be more exciting that one day when we express that upward calling, when the Lord Jesus comes to take us to heaven. There will stand before the Bema Seat of Jesus Christ, and the book of our works is going to be opened. And, and God's going to say, you know, my son Jesus did this through you. And he did this through you. Oh, wow, and he did this through you. You know, you can hear all the angels go, wow, this is incredible stuff. We will stand before the Bema Seat of Christ and we'll receive the prize. 
And I always like that, that part that we see in the book of Revelation because the Bible speaks of the awards, the prizes so often as the crowns, the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, and different crowns. And there's that scene in, in the book of Revelation where the elders have received their crowns. And what do they do with them? What do they do with their prize? They take their crowns and they cast them at the feet of Jesus in worship because it's all you, Jesus. I don't know about you, I want a whole bunch of stuff up here that I can give to Jesus. Not for me, but for Jesus. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for calling us, for saving us, for making us your children. For putting us on that track of life, Father, where we can run to fulfill your purposes and your will in our lives. Father, I pray that you would give us the strength through your Holy Spirit not to look back. Not to look back. To forget the past. To break the power of the past. To move forward. Father, help us to do that as individuals and help us to do that as a church, Father. Because every one of us as individuals in the church, we, we come on a Sunday morning and we bring a certain amount of baggage. And church baggage gets awfully big. <laughs> when we all come and bring the same baggage and we all bring it together and go, well, that's pretty important baggage. We all brought it. <laughs> and Lord, I just pray that you would help us to get past whatever it is, Lord, that would prevent us as a church, prevent us as individuals for looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And this we do ask in Jesus' name. Amen.